This is an IMA podcast. The Institute of Modern Art is a contemporary art space in Brisbane, Australia. Since 1975, we have been presenting cutting-edge visual arts through our annual program of exhibitions, public programs, publications, and off-site initiatives by local, national, and international artists. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where the IMA now stands, the land of the Yuggera and Turrbal people. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome everyone and thank you very much for coming. Uh, So I will introduce the two speakers. So Dr Natalia Hughes is the creator of the interior over here and she's also the Honours Program Director of Visual Arts at Queensland College of Art. Andrew Jeeves, both doctors, by the way, (laughs) I shouldn't lock their titles off, Uh, is a clinical psychologist who provides therapy to adults, couples and older adolescents from a private practice located in Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. And he's also one part of the trio behind an absolutely brilliant podcast. And I know there's a number of fans in the audience of that podcast here today. Uh, Three Associating Adventures in Relational Psychoanalytic Supervision. And if you haven't listened to that podcast and you want a brilliant introduction to psychoanalytic thinking and practice, I I couldn't recommend a better podcast. Uh, So to start us off, uh, uh, this work, perhaps, Natalia, you can um, briefly... (laughs) Jesus Christ. All right, I'll ask a general question. You're a bit interviewed out. So, okay, case studies are central to Andrew's pod and to um, the interior. So these are Freud's case studies. I should preface that comment. Why are case uh, case studies of other people's problems so compelling? I'll answer first. Um, For me, and I just said this to these guys in the shop, um, so I have a practice where I've always worked with images that already exist so normally kind of canonical are historical images but um, I felt like in reading Freud's case studies that there were these incredibly powerful images throughout and so I've I felt like I wanted to play with those images and um, use those images as a starting point he's just he's a great writer as we were saying and his descriptions of particular um, sometimes symptoms um, sometimes you know, dream imagery are just so, um, even when he's not convincing on other <laughs> fronts, there's something about the way he constructs images and the language he uses that I just find really, really compelling. Um, and I'm thinking in particular, you've heard me give a paper about the, um, in the fetish essay, the man who was um, had a fetish for the shine on a woman's nose and I think he uses the phrase unctuous gleam um, and images like that. I, I, I just would read the case studies to find images like that. I feel like they open something up. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I think case studies are compelling in Freud's hands because he wrote them to be compelling and he had an agenda, right? He'd just kind of come up with psychoanalysis and come up with that as a theory and as a way of working uh, and so he was trying to convince people of the 
efficacy, I guess, of, of his techniques. Um, in preparation for this, I was revisiting some of the case studies, and I think one of the things that struck me was sort of how fraught they are, in a way. <laughs> mm. um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and, yeah, so I think, I think there's something compelling about Freud's case studies because he really intends them to be. Um, I think there's something compelling about other people's stories because as humans we're just interested in other people and there's something where we can kind of resonate with other people's experiences um, and connect in with that. So, yeah. That's a very interesting comment about the... Because there's sort of... You're grabbing very particular things out of them, vivid images. And it sounds like Andrew's going to the intriguing nature of the actual case. Could you say a bit more about them being sort of deliberately almost... What, what did you say? Sort of difficult or... Uh, not difficult. I think I used the word fraught. Fraught. Because I was just thinking... I, I mean, oh, I'm thinking particularly of the case of the rat man um, where oh, rat. Freud... Yeah. That's, yes, oh, yes. Rat. On, on the merch, the rats in the middle. <laughs> the rat <laughs> so this was a patient who Freud saw uh, for about 10 months. Um, he was dubbed the rat man because he had this fantasy that something terrible was going to happen to his father, who'd actually passed away two years prior to him seeing Freud. Um, something terrible was going to happen to his father and to his uh, partner as well. And it involved this kind of horrific thing about a rat that he'd heard that was a way of torturing people, um, which you can read more about that if you want. I won't traumatise you with that now. <laughs> um, but so at the time when Freud wrote up the case of the rat man, he was really trying to, to kind of make a case for psychoanalysis and to show that it, that it worked. Um, he saw the rat man for 10 months and then the rat man went away and died in war, um, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, I think the, there's something of Freud's case studies which is almost like a political pamphlet in a way where he's trying to convince, mm -hmm. trying to convince people of, of something, yeah. Because when I teach, I used to teach course art and psychoanalysis, I often said read the case histories because I think they do... They're a very good introduction. If you know nothing, they, they give you a very quick idea of what the process is about, what, you know, what... Uh, I have a very good quote about the unconscious <laughs> from... This is studies of hysteria, where there's a very strange case. I wonder what you both make of this. Um, so it says, thus, for six whole months, one of our patients reproduced under hypnosis with hallucinatory vividness everything that had excited her on the same day of the previous year during an attack of acute hysteria. A diary kept by her mother without her knowledge proved the completeness of the reproduction. So that's quite, I think that gives you an incredibly vivid idea of the unconscious and just how weird we are. Don't you think? <laughs> I had a good sense of that already, I think, of being weird. Um, but yeah, I was just saying to Andrew too, I had, I'm, I'm a child who had extremely vivid dreams and sometimes terrible dreams and it caused a great deal of anxiety until I approached them differently and started writing them down. And I think something of that um, vividness is in that you know it's in the story of that particular patient but then it was it's also evident in his case studies and then I wanted to work with that kind of vividness here as well um, there's something we're, we're intrigued by hearing these details about a person's you know desires wishes fears anxieties like it seems quite human it's hot gossip but 
in the late 1800s um, <laughs> and written in a perhaps kind of format. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting, the stasis of that image. Or the fact Clarity. that you can replay something the following year day by day without even knowing that you're doing it, mm-hmm. which is where the, yeah, it, it clearly is out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Yeah, I mean, a quotation that Freud is really well known for is that when he said hysterics, <clears throat> hysterics suffer mainly from reminiscences. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the past or unresolved conflicts from the past were played out in bodily symptoms in certain ways. Um, and I think more broadly speaking, there's the sense of all of us as humans repeating patterns that we haven't quite resolved or understood um, in, in more relational ways with other people as well, um, not just sort of in symptoms. So, yeah, the unconscious is... Wow. Mm. Well, that's quite a literal repetition. <laughs> like, right. oh dear. Um, Andrew, I was wanting to ask you, each episode of your pod focuses on a case study. Um, and I always think they're real people, even though, you know, you, you, they're not. I know that as well. I, I listen to them and they're so compelling. How do you um, make up your case studies? And obviously it's the three of you and... Um, is it that you're going for the conflict and you... It, but they are so compelling. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, I guess, firstly, it really is important to say that the, the cases that we uh, explore in the podcast, I guess we would call them case stories or uh, maybe like a therapeutic tale, to borrow the language of the late Atlas and Lou Aaron. Um, so they really are um, fictional characters that are conveying real relational dynamics that we've experienced but that, that aren't sort of real people. So I think, I think it's important to differentiate between a case study, which is based on a real person, and a case story, which is um, a fictional narrative that involves real dynamics. Um, so in terms of the podcast and in terms of how we come up with those characters, it, I would say it really is a joint effort. So Jill Straker and Rachel Burton, who do the podcast with me, are in the audience. Um, because of who they are, I might not point them out, but um, <laughs> if you see someone who looks like Jill or Rachel, say hi. And, Either meet them or meet a stranger, see how you go. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, we kind of tend to brainstorm together and to, to free associate together, right? To kind of say what's on our mind in relation to these characters um, and to build them together and, and weave them in together. And we have sort of practice goes where we try different things and, and just sort of build it through an emergent process. So um, it's kind of cool. It's almost like a parallel process. There's something sort of free associative and reverie-like and dreamlike in the process of, of dreaming up these case stories, yeah. Natalia, tell us why you picked the ones you picked for the interior. Uh, I guess uh, in part, um, well, they either appealed to me in my, I don't know how to explain that part of it, or they were iconic for um, the development and then the ongoing kind of profile of psychoanalysis. So obviously the rat man, um, well, they're all key. Um, The rat man, the wolf man, um, <laughs> which I actually hadn't really paid enough attention to until we had a conversation about. Um, I knew about the story of the Wolfman, but I hadn't seen his paintings. So um, that kind of his desire to kind of visualise um, his nightmare of uh, which you know happened when he was four, when he looked, you know, he imagined looking out the window and there's these wolves in the tree outside six to seven but for some reason in his paintings there's only ever five which is mysterious um that story the rat man story 
Um, and then um, the other ones that I was really interested in somehow registering were the case studies of Anna O and Dora um, because of wanting to look at the way um, woman was dealt with um, as a issue uh, in Freud's time. So I guess they were, um, yeah, they, they, it's its own iconography and so I wanted to play with that iconography as well as introduce elements that I just found compelling from reading psychoanalytic accounts. Um, so the Balbo, which is the figure that's probably less known, who's the figure with the face on the torso, um, is in quite an obscure essay called uh, Mythological Parallel to a Visual Obsession. Um, it's a case study where a man suddenly, when he looks at his father, he um, has a face where his genitals should be. Um, and Freud relates that to this kind of mythological figure of the Balbo who's in the Demeter story. So that was not, that's, that's not so well known, but for some reason I felt like I wanted to honour that strange kind of appearance, that strange, very striking image that is in the writing. Um, that some of the other imagery, yeah, I guess that crossover between what uh, psychoanalysis is associated with versus what it's, how it's meaningful for me occurs in different parts of the show. And the, um, just if anyone hasn't already seen it, the, um, the it's on the rug, the um, Wolfman's dream. So that blue rug has the image which we strangely discovered had only entered into the Freud collection well after Freud had died. So we're a bit, I mean, so I don't know whether anyone knows how that happened. There's two images that um, Sergei Pankachev painted, which um, Natalia has repurposed into the rug, uh, but he can't have had them in the collection. No, well, that's the other thing that I'm engaging with. It's not just the images from the case studies, but the other part of this, the other kind of, imagery that I wanted to, I don't want to say mine because that sounds pretty exploitative, but, you know, work with was the imagery from his treatment room, which is in itself become iconic. So he collected, you know, like around 3,000 objects and um, um, paintings and prints and um, objects of antiquities and then his room is known for its very specific kind of decor so that's also that's the other imagery that's been kind of woven throughout the show it's not just the images from the case studies um, but they obviously they have a relationship to each other and they're given a kind of similar treatment in each instance across the different media that are in the show. I had a question which I'll jump forward to that <laughs> precisely right. about that. <laughs> Um, to both of you, um, Freud's consulting room obviously was stuffed full of antiquities. What does that do to a consulting room to have all these little eyes looking at you from the table or it's whatever? Very paranoid interpretation. <laughs> yes, oops. Where's <laughs> <laughs> um, my invisibility cloak? <laughs> um, I guess I was interested in um, having been in a few treatment rooms in a different way than what you may have. Um, I was interested in, so I know his interest in antiquities and the process of archaeology um, and its uh, analogy to the process of psychoanalysis being an important thing. But I also can see in his treatment room and have seen in other treatment rooms the way it has to kind of hedge between a professional space and then a comfortable almost privately, well, definitely private, but almost kind of domestic at times space. And 
I feel like all of those objects must have, depending on your standpoint, must have a kind of comforting effect. So you see the eyes of all the objects and I see like, you know, friendly decor. And you know, and there you have a diagnosis of both of this. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> because also I, I remember um, in my particular psychoanalysis experience, um, and my analyst was someone who collects a lot of art and thinks about art and talks about art a lot, and we would have a lot of conversations about art. But in the moments where I would go in and I just wouldn't want to talk that day, which are exactly the days where you should go in, um, and she was very comfortable with silence. In that silence. I'm contentedly looking at a thing that covers the window that had a decorative ornamental pattern. Like I'm happy to just sit there and look at that. It's like a standoff, right? And she's just waiting until I get sick of doing that and we'll put words in place of doing that. And sometimes it took a long time. So my experience of that particular kind of space is that choice that I'm not, I'm not sure how careful she was in putting that particular thing in that place. But for me, it was a very important thing object um place to resist but then also encourage me back into the room to talk i gave away a lot then. <laughs> i think that's such a great question because you were saying sue what what is it like for the person in the room mm. to be surrounded by these all these eyes that are looking at them um and you know you were kind of joking about how Natalia, your sense was that there were all these kind of objects that were welcoming you um and i mean my, my kind of gut response to the question is well it depends on the person who's in the room right we're all going to experience that in a really different way um i think there was something about freud's office that very authentically conveyed who he was in the world he was a very real person in the world and i think there's something about therapy where there are two people in the room at least um, with two different subjectivities and those subjectivities are going to bump into each other in different ways um, depending on different histories and different things are going to get enacted in certain ways so I think there was like a nice kind of parallel process that happened there right where it's like how would this person experience these evil eyes or these welcoming objects <laughs> you know are we more exhibitionistic or more paranoid or more sort of indifferent um, you know, this is, this is something that psychoanalysis would call transference, right? The patient is putting something of their past experiences of the world onto the present experience um, and experiencing the world through that lens. And it's the work of the therapist and the patient to work out what that means and to understand it better. So, yeah, such a good question. What's on your wall? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, uh, I actually lease an office from two people. Oh. So... Uh, yeah, so what is on my, my wall are the decorations that they've chosen to put in their office, which is good because they've both got better taste than me. So, um, yeah, but there's, there's a number of kind of assorted objects and, and different people have different interactions with them. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> um, the next question I had was, again, about actually the interior, moving to the couch now. <laughs> What does the apparatus of the couch do in the Freudian uh, con consulting room and, and what do these variations do here, <laughs> which is for both of you also? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, the couch is kind of iconic, right, in, analytic, um, in, in analysis and analytic therapy. Um, uh, Freud first got patients to move to the couch because he felt that being watched all day made it difficult, made it difficult for him um, to have a free-floating attention between both what was being said and, and the way in which it was being said, between what was happening in the room and what was happening in his reverie. So um, 
that was kind of part of the reason why he moved patients to the couch. And he found that when patients were on the couch, um, they were more easily able to talk about their internal world at times, depending on their personality structure. Um, so yeah, I think the couch is, is, is pretty iconic. Um, so I, the positioning, that kind of traditional Freudian tradition, I suppose, um, of the analyst sort of maybe being slightly behind um, and so the patient can look away and be on a, in repose. Um, so just in case anyone's not familiar with the classic posse. <laughs> the classic posse. So I wanted to work with the classic posse <laughs> as a starter but then find out where I could go from there. So I was thinking of the, of the Le Corbusier um, Chaise Ange and um, so it has the kind of curvature um, that I've then turned into a boob shape. Um, and then I've imagined, I've, I wanted to kind of um, extend from there and think about different positions between um, analyst and analyst and I can never, I still don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Dalia. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, so there's different I've sort of there's three proposals here of what might happen there's the one that we've been calling the democratic boob chair where people are on the same level but uh, and there you can't you sort of you can't see um, you could still maintain that position of one both people sitting facing the uh, the same direction so that you're not you don't have um, this kind of face-to-face potential, even if you did, it would be obscured by the upholstery. Then there's one that I was imagining uh, with the uneven boobs that I was imagining as an umpire's chair um, <laughs> and then a long banana lounge um, where it's a bit more comfortable for the um, patient and uh, less um, comfortable for the analyst. And then there's a the one where the analyst is held in a uh, uh, position which is sort of comfortable it's a harness uh, but and they can lean forward um, and then there's the papasan um, for the analyst and um, to sit in I guess they all um, were motivated by an interest in how I could register that um, traditional posse as you call it um, but then um, move away from it to suggest different alternatives I knew that the chair needed to hold and support um, and I got very interested in the idea that it might at the same time comfort um, like I think about holding a child that's a very comfortable thing but it could also hold in a way that was so restrictive as to um, make one acutely aware of how their shape doesn't naturally fit in um, just to kind of heighten that bodily awareness so yeah they're quite strange um, <laughs> to the extent that they are both comfortable, squishy, inviting and quite lush in their ornamentation but then they also have this, they are not like other chairs, they are not like other couches, they don't allow you to completely let go and relax so I guess that works counter to what the chair in psychoanalysis should be. Although I, again, referring to my own experience, you have to sit in periods of discomfort sometimes to be able to speak differently. So um, I was interested in how I might facilitate that too. It's interesting that the discomfort comfort that is in each one of them. Uh, yeah, there are positions in which they are extraordinarily comfortable, but there are also a lot of positions where 
you will need to see a chiropractor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or, you know, the the umpire's chair, it's very hard to just get into that chair. It's quite – I see people climb up into it and try and find – side saddle is the most comfortable place, but then you're never – like facing the person that you're supposed to be speaking with it's um it's hard to inhabit that chair no matter who you are Mm. i was thinking before when i was spending time with the work i was just kind of spending time with the different arrangements and thinking about how we could all experience these kind of arrangements at different times in relationship be it with a therapist or with someone else you know sometimes it feels egalitarian other times it feels like one up one down other times it feels kind of intrusive perhaps um, and just thinking about the, the range of movement between the different positions in, into subjectivity. Yes, and I was also thinking about, in part because of the podcast, about how <laughs> it's not, there's no, it, they can be switched around. It's not like there's one marked, you know, analyst and then there's one for the person who's undertaking analysis. They, I was thinking about them as um, just provocations for that relationship in every instance, you know. Right. And in terms of comfort and discomfort as well, which kind of arrangement we tend to gravitate towards and which kind of arrangement we shy away from, yeah. Maybe all consulting rooms should have a range of these and you could sort of play out the dynamic according to how you feel that day. It's like, oh, no, they've gone to the umpire. (laughs) What's happening? Uh Uh-oh, they've gone to the sadistic harness. (laughs) Here we go. Um, you mentioned the boob form. Can you tell us a little bit more? It's harder to see now the couches are on, um, but it's very distinct when they're, I mean, rather the upholstery. Can you talk about the feminization of the consulting room that flows from the breast form informing each one of the couches? Yeah, I guess that comes from reading later psychoanalytic accounts like Klein and um, I know that's one of the keywords part object um, <laughs> but uh, probably because I am a fairly new mother my child is five um, the if I think about comfort and I think about discomfort and I think about what it is to hold and when I think about what it is to um, to what a kind of foundational relationship is and what it is to relate to another person, it's hard for me to get past that maternal relationship. And I know Freud was reckoning with what it is to, you know, with the way that woman was constructed, women are constructed. Um, and um, I just, I felt like the breast was the, as far as what I wanted to prompt with the chairs and I just felt like the breast was the best form that this Uh, that it might take so um i don't know if i've answered that well um it makes sense to me that if i was thinking about an object that made you more aware of your body and provided comfort and a space for holding but also prompted some sort of discomfort so that we might think about what that discomfort is that that particular form was ideal so um yeah and again it referred to that like a bussier kind of modern chair moment too um i've had some interesting conversations about those forms and both with the fabricator that we work with and then yeah we've had we have had different moments of interfacing with the general public where people don't necessarily that's not the first thing that they notice about it sometimes that unfolds after the fact and people are a bit shocked or surprised or they're pretending that they didn't see it (laughs) and waiting (laughs) for me to say something about it, which is also interesting. 
We're not pretending, unconsciously registering. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting then that discomfort that you you were talking about is a bit Kleine and then it's got the ambivalence perhaps in the chair. Yeah, definitely. I mean, ambivalence is something that I wanted to acknowledge everywhere in the show. I don't know much of this to talk about, but when I think about my child's relationship to the boob, and this is maybe more transitional objects. <laughs> um, yeah, they have to endure the boobs <laughs> in the mothering moment of ha- like having an infant. They have to endure so much um, feeling and physical strain that they seem great as a as a frame mm-hmm. in my head. It's interesting too, right? Because as far as Klein was concerned, ambivalence is like what we're aiming for, yes. right? <laughs> that's that's the end that's point. <laughs> yeah, the the process involves splitting, where you're not able to hold both the good and the bad of anything in mind at the same time. It's either the good breast or the bad breast, either the breast that nourishes or the breast that provides the kind of sour milk. Um, you know, to to be able to kind of yeah have two or more feelings about an object or about someone is really a developmental achievement, according to Klein. Um, so, yeah. I can't stop thinking about a young journalist's question that was about whether I was concerned, especially given that I was a mother, about whether people would read the chairs, the form of the chairs, differently to how I was talking about them. And I was just utterly perplexed. I couldn't, I didn't know what he was saying until I, oh, their breasts. And so he read them in terms of sex and thought that I was like, do you think people are going to think I'm a pervert? Is that, is that what that is? Like what, what's your concern? Like I, I just, it was so far, that kind of understanding of what the breast is was so far from what I was thinking about when I made the work that I still, I'm still sitting with it going, well, what was, is that in the work? Is that where, is that how they might be perceived? It just seemed a long way from... Um, except as a kind of humour, it seemed a long way from that. <laughs> so what did he mean? It was that you shouldn't sexualise furniture. I, I think he was he had sexualised the furniture. <laughs> he had thought that the breast was necessarily a sexual form and it made the made this a very sexual installation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And and was I okay with that? He sounded quite concerned. <laughs> he did. Like and I and I guess I've I that's why I was a little bit um it's an interesting question. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Moving right along to hysteria. <laughs> the um back wall has um uh, highly stylized moments from an hysterical attack. Um, can you talk about the role of hysteria in this particular work of yours? Because obviously it also occurs in the case histories. Yeah, well, I think about um, how important psychoanalysis was for that shift in thinking about hysteria. Because I remember when I was a first-year student, I read about how initially hysteria was thought to be because of a roaming uterus that would sometimes get lodged in the throat and produce a coughing sensation (laughs) and sometimes get lodged somewhere else. Like I love that idea. It's great. Um, But that shift to thinking that perhaps hysterical symptoms were 
um, could be brought out through the talking to cure and were the um, were symptoms that were pointing to different um, problems. Um, so hysteria obviously is so key for psychoanalysis. I, they're based on the photographer uh, Romo. So at the, another important book for this project was Diddy Huberman's Inventions of Hysteria, um, which sort of talks about the origins of photography and the origins of hysteria coinciding so that this amazing spectacle could be registered in this kind of photographic documentation. Um, and I feel like we had a talk about this, maybe about how art has done the um, august... Um, imagery mm. a lot and especially that arched figure um, so I knew I didn't want to touch that but I still also wanted to register how how important the image was um, to psychoanalysis in that way um, and I also wanted a moment of like wall art decor that was a bit um, it serves a few purposes it like binds the space um, it gives focus when I think about that focusing on the um, the window covering. <laughs> um, it provides something to look at and talk about. But I also enjoyed that the the figures um, in the way that I've designed them are have come from a hysterical fit, but sort of look like they're in a sort of joyous, like they're dancing, they're having a great time. Um, it's a kind of joyous moment as well. So. Yeah, I, I just I was interested in how productive the image of hysteria is in many ways. Andrew, what where what is the fate of hysteria now? I know Juliet Mitchell has brought it back into the fold, but where where does it sit? Do you think this kind of imagery now? That's such a good question. I'm getting distracted though. I'm still stuck by the, with the journalist question of oh. you. Can <laughs> we go Can we go back there for a second? Because I just had I had like an afterthought about it, right? <laughs> I was thinking about what Freud said about, he called it anaclesis, where the, the kind of ego instincts are propped up on the sex instincts, right? Mm. So what we need to do as an individual to survive, like feed ourselves, water ourselves, relieve ourselves, that sort of thing, are propped up on the kind of sexual instincts that are involved with pleasure and at times reproduction. Um, and so I was just thinking about that in terms of his question, because you're like, the breasts are about, you know, like nurturance and, you know, kind of keeping like an infant alive. And he's like, they're about sex, aren't they? <laughs> and I was just sort of thinking about that. that there's something very Freudian about that there is. interaction, uh, right? I, I did. Yeah. I, th I, think he, I think it's an interesting question. Like I keep saying, yeah. I think it's a very interesting question. He gave some things away there about yeah. how he relates to that particular form. And about how you do as well, right? Yeah, that was, because that's the interesting thing because you're, you're like, uh, it's about nurturing my child. He's like, isn't it about sex? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Both can be true. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I, and I, I think like I, I suppose it's just more about the the judgment aspect of it. Like it, it it's appropriate for me to make a work about the maternal but it's not appropriate for me to make a work about sex. Like right. um, like is that – that seems that seemed implied in it. Oh, more. right, like it would be scary. I might be overthinking right, it but, right, yeah, right. it is a strange question, right? Like yeah, totally. Um, yeah, Okay, back to hysteria. Sorry, what was your question about hysteria? Ask, ask it again now, I'm not distracted by that afterthought. <laughs> In terms of contemporary psychoanalysis, where does hysteria sit now? Given that it's so important to the beginnings, um, and I was thinking Juliet Mitchell has sort of tried to rescue it as a concept. Yeah, I mean, I think, where to start? I guess I'm, I'm thinking immediately of Anna O. Oh, Right, or Bertha Pappenheim as her real life name was. And so she was Bloy's patient 
and Freud thought a lot thought a lot with Breuer about her, and she was the person who who came up with the term the talking cure because she was in treatment with Breuer for about two years and he wasn't quite sure what to do because she had all these symptoms. She'd lose her sight, she'd lose feeling down one side of her body, she wouldn't eat at times, she wouldn't be able to drink. All these kind of symptoms came on after the death of her father. Um, and But she said to Breuer, she said, you know, I kind of come in and talk about it and sometimes that helps. Um, and so in a way hysteria is sort of foundational for all of psychoanalysis because it, it was sort of the start of... Um, this recognition, at least in this kind of way, that talking about things can be useful and can kind of result in the relieving of certain things. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of no one is going to be diagnosed with hysteria today, um, but I guess there's still, um, it still sort of lives on in certain ways. So I guess conversion disorder in the DSM-5 would be the thing which is sort of aligned in some way with hysteria um, symptom-wise. Um, so, yeah, it still has a legacy today, yeah. But in terms of your interest, Natalia, it was very much that feminization, like the, I guess the revolt of uh, 19th century women to their conditions. I mean, that's some, a lot of the feminist literature in the, I don't know, 70s and 80s tended to lock in on that aspect of these women, They're their bodies protesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that supposedly without those oppressive conditions, you're less likely to form a symptom in that mode. Um, but yeah. clearly you're doing something, because you've sort of matisse it. It's sort of a bit <laughs> joy of, what's that one where they're all frolicking in a circle? Um, joy de vie. Jo joy de vie. Is, what is it called? Joy of something. Um, did someone have a title? Oh, thank you. <laughs> so you have turned it in. You have taken what is effectively a 19th century. Well, if you think you were saying like Pat Brasington, Anne Ferrin, um, Louise Bourgeois have all emphasised that arch, you know, the body's turned into like a complete contortion and the person you would, in case people don't know, the very famous woman, it was called the, like, the Grand Attack, wasn't it? And there's like this, these incredible photographs that Didi Uberman analyzes of that um, strange performance. Mm -hmm. or that it, and people went to see it, I think, as well. Um, so it's a, so it, that seems quite different from how Freud's discussing symptoms. Those attacks are very different from Freud's, from Anna O and the other um, case studies. Mm. So it's just, I've never quite managed to put those two together, I have to say. The images from, you know, the invention of hysteria versus the case studies, they don't quite come together. I think through other writers, like I think about, um, I'm not sure if it's Groz in Volatile Bodies who talks oh, about the historical that. symptom extending to the, the point where oh. a dressmaker would join not the anatomical. arm to the torso, not where the arm actually extends into the. I remember part. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just the idea of the physical symptom, the just the way we write on the body. Um, I see that being drawn out by her, but yeah, I, I guess um, it just seemed so. Productive. I don't know how else to say it, but like the the imagery, it 
I was thinking about this in the Baxel account, like writing about art and how you're not ever, in, in describing a work, you're not um, simply describing your producing something else it's not the art it becomes a second thing on top of the artwork because it's not a replica it extends and I suppose in doing anything with that imagery or in any of the Freudian imagery it becomes something else again it produces something extra um yeah can I use the word matissing in like a different sentence <laughs> yeah why not <laughs> you've matisseed it up <laughs> or you've made it You've well, I think you've pulled out the negativity that's often in that hysteria image. Yeah, they are. They've usually used as like um, a way of speaking to particular, yeah, well, to oppression, um, and uh, they have a sort of gravitas. And I did. I I was on. I think humor and um, speaking to play and a certain amount of joy would just be a better way of registering um, what's possible. Um, for this moment. <laughs>